Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. What's going on? Just another day living the dream, trying to bring in some big shots from around Kansas City. We got one here today. I think we got somebody here that actually knows what the hell's going on around here. I know. Do you know? You want to you introduce him because you introduced me to him. Maybe. I think. Well, today we have the president of the Kansas City Tech Council, Mr. Ryan Weber. You had a good emphasis on president there. That made president. it sound even more official. El Presidente. I would like to welcome you, Mr. President, to our podcast Thank so you. i'm i'm master he is oh, president what, what are you i have no idea anymore like i'm just the guy i'm just here the guy i'm just here i'm just here to uh stoke conversation amongst all the fancy people that we know in and around kansas city like ryan weber so well, hi ryan this has just been a real boost to ego guys yeah, thanks man. yeah <laughs> anything we can do to make you feel better appreciate my, that anything it, watson can do to make you feel better should, should we call you my grace yes well, you sounds like you're still in the Sir. Game of Thrones. <laughs> Sir. <laughs> Sir Weber. So, Ryan, you are the president of the Kansas City Tech Council. First off, thank you. Thank you, guys. This will be fun. Yeah. And, well, and I mean, seriously, we do want to say thanks. We, um, you know, Startup Hustle is all about talking about the things we've done well, more so the things we don't do well. We talk about a lot of different stuff and we try to get people from Kansas City in here. And I am really happy to have you in here because you are not only in the El Presidente of the Tech Council, you are also a spokesperson or a, a, a big voice for some interesting stuff. So we'll talk about that too. Let's do it. Yeah. So what is the Tech Council? Like, what do you guys do, Ryan? Yeah, well, that's interesting. That's always a question I, I tend to get. So the KC Tech Council serves as a regional advocate for Kansas tech industry, and we're structured like an, an industry association. So we have member companies that fund the organization. Those are big tech companies like Cerner and Garmin and Google and Microsoft and, and on and on and on. And Stackify. Stackify and full scale. <laughs> so it, Startup hustle. it runs the gamut as Next far day. as who these companies are and as far as what we do, uh, we listen to the industry to find out what the needs are tech, of tech companies are in this region. And not surprisingly, workforce is always number one. And yeah. that's something that everybody can relate to. We also do a lot of policy advocacy. So we have lobbyists at a state and federal level that represent our interests as well as monitoring legislation that's going through um, our state capitals and our federal institution as well, just to make sure that there's not a conflict with things that could affect tech companies in the future. Let's define tech company real quick because that, that's pretty broad. It's every company, like, yeah. I mean, you could build software, but tech could also be hardware related. It could be, I mean, what what do you guys, like what are the common delineations of yeah. tech companies? You know, that, I used to get that question a lot and I've kind of stopped answering it. Every company is a tech company. And if you look so at our when membership. I, when, I, when I ask you if there's stuff you didn't want to talk about, was the definition of, <laughs> of what a tech company is on there? <laughs> well, let me ask it this way. What is the least technical company that is a member of the tech council? Oh, man. 
I mean, there are like dairy farmers in America, on there, like, but they're hugely technical. I was going mean, to say using, that's like, actually RFID not a good sensors yeah. in the ears of cows. Right. And did I is that did I talk to you about that? Talking about like the droopiness of the eye or something like they're yeah, literally they're, using like pattern recognition to try to figure out. When yeah, cows they're are highly safe. technical. All right, and, and they're using me that. blockchain to identify how much milk is needed at any given time. It's incredible. So they're yeah. way the the dairy farmers. They're are way ahead of yeah. All right, and they're an association. So dairy farmers pay in so that. There's an advocacy group that's not only affecting the market, but also governments and all that. So we're kind of like that for, for tech companies. But so anyways, you got workforce development, policy advocacy, and like any good association, if you're a member and you're involved, you get access and that's access to events, communications, people. And we love connecting those companies at the high level. And our audience, by the way, is just the C-level. So that's typically who we work with the most and who we communicate with the most. Most of our events are focused on people at a senior level or higher. Not all. There's plenty of other events just for others one. in the tech community. But just yeah, one to one. Just great. hosted our CEO retreat yeah. in May. Yeah, that was great. Did you have fun, Matt? It was awesome. Yeah. It's great. It's my second time there. Yeah, Matt was second the uh, really pushed me to go and enjoyed uh, it. I mean, yeah, I go. Yeah, it's a must. It's a must attend. Good. Um, the the content was great. I enjoyed. Uh, uh, what would you call the guy? The almost like the customer psychologist yeah the name? forester analyst yes. james mcquivy yeah yeah james mcquivy yeah. i i have a bunch of notes and actually took some stuff into that and did an action plan i enjoyed the vc panels and all that different stuff and then i just enjoyed honestly being around my peers like that was that was uh, it's still the best part good yeah that's the goal i mean so i think that's the largest concentration of ceo especially those with a tech background at any given event in kansas city I mean, there were total attendees around 90, but we had about 70 or so actual CEOs attend. Because we have sponsors and other guests that yeah. come too. But, and you had a couple local, uh, the mayoral candidates. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think there was some clear, uh, one of them clearly had, had a lot to say about the future of tech in Kansas City. I think they're both interested in that, but they have very different approaches to that conversation. Sure. And Kansas City, yeah, we've been known as a smart city for a long time. We had a first rollout of all the technology a couple of years ago and uh, with a big project with Cisco and Sprint and a number of others. But now there's a second project down, coming down the line and just kind of fizzled out because of the selection. So if that's going to continue, it's going to need support from the next mayor. Okay. And we'll see who that is. Honestly, I have no idea at this point. Where'd the smart city stuff ever go? Because remember that was a big yeah. thing. Is that, did that happen? I mean, is that around me? Am I in the smart city? No, it's all it? along the streetcar corridor. So there's okay. sensors and there's cameras that essentially are tracking whether or not it's a human or a car. And right. so when you get all this data, supposedly you could use that data for making a more efficient experience as you're walking or, or traveling through the city. And there was also streetlights that were basically created so that they could dim or not, depending on how many people are on the street at any given point in time. Mm -hmm. So if no one's walking down the street, why do you need streetlights of full power? You can pull those back and save money. And as all that technology, it's cool, but it's not, I mean, it can't just save money, it has to make money. And that's where they were hoping this data mining and this, this living lab could be that. But some of that never materialized. And that's why there's an opportunity for kind of a second phase of that. And so there's a number of local companies like Black & Veatch and others who are instrumental in the rollout of the first phase. And we'll see who can be involved in that second one, because that could be even cooler. All right. Very cool. <laughs> so... What do you, how, right, how did you get to this tech council thing? Can we start there? Sure. What, so, what is your backstory? How did you get here, Mr. President? Well, how far back do we want to go Superheroes have the backstory. When you were five, where were you? <laughs> uh, wow. Where was I when I was five? 
I mean, Salina, when Sandy Kemper Kansas. was on, he started his story from when he was about five. Pulling he, a red wagon. He had a red wagon and a shoe shine <laughs> business. And, and he even had a fourth comma. He talked about trillions, not even billions. Of course. Yeah. No, I know. Let's not. Uh, so we're a nonprofit. <laughs> <laughs> so you're a two comma uh, organization at best. Or maybe yeah. a one comma. Well, maybe. Yeah, who getting, knows? Getting close. Um, okay. So it's not that interesting of a story, but I have always been passionate about technology. And I think. A lot of why we advocate for the things we do with education right now is because not everybody has the experience to learn tech skills in those transformational years. I didn't. I went to public school. And I was Are passionate. You from Casey? Yeah, I went to Latham North. So okay. through the like the school district. Sure. But you know, computer lab was like a 30 minute experience that you could have if there was an open computer. So not everyone had that experience. And I was lucky my parents bought a PC. And so we had a computer in the house. And I started tinkering with it. And I started learning through other people that you could call another computer, you could hack in, again, it's legal back then, no one really knew how to do that stuff probably, but you could play games on their computers, you could probably capture all the files that were there, but that's when I first realized the power of the internet, and I was probably 13, and then eventually t- taught myself how to build websites and use tools like Dreamweaver back in the day, where when I was in college, I started building websites for some student groups, and eventually built like a CD-ROM for sorority recruitment. So the, when the women were arriving on ah, campus, that's what I'm talking about. They knew like what, where to be, what to wear, what the schedule solving was. Solving problems that need to be solved. It was a huge benefit to them because they had a lot of questions and this answered by other questions. So that's how he became the president. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that's an example of like in college, but guys, I got a marketing <laughs> degree. Like nobody would hire me for a tech role in Kansas City. I could code. I could do some web development, but I had a marketing degree. So I didn't even get an interview from Cerner, Receptive Software, any of those companies that were hiring like crazy, never even got through. So, I mean, I went through a consulting route after that. So I worked for my college fraternity as a consultant, became a fundraising consultant where I did capital campaigns for private schools, charities, uh, other fraternities, and then went to work at K-State for the College of Business. And got pretty burned down in raising money. Because if you're not super passionate about what you're raising money for, it gets old real quick. And it did. And then I quit it all and decided to help my sister with a angel investment group here in Kansas City. She's been on the podcast. Has she good? Yeah, she was like episode six or seven, right? We'll have people, let's not we'll yeah. have people assume who, who she is. Yeah. <laughs> so, anyways, um, you know, she reached out and was expanding from Nashville to Kansas City. I, through my fundraising career, knew some wealthy investors and helped bring them into the fold. It was hard. Honestly, it was it was way harder than we thought. And at that time, you're looking 2011. So we were still dealing with the aftermath of the recession. But for a year, we, you know, we kind of got that off the ground. And during that time frame, we also, uh, some friends of mine started an organization called Casey Hub and Aaron Slope and a few others out there created a website that we were aggregating news and information about startups in Kansas City, tech startups specifically. And there really wasn't any, at that time, there wasn't a lot of news about tech companies. They were just mythical things that existed in Kansas City, but the Business Journal wasn't covering them. Star wasn't covering them. At that time, there was no Silicon Prairie news. There was no Startland news. There was no coverage. So we created Casey Hub, which is a blog, and that got the attention of Chamber the Kansas City Area Development Council and a few other groups, and then match that with the Angel Investment Group. All of a sudden, like we were at the forefront of some funding and exposure for startups. And 
it was all volunteer. So none of us were full-time on KC Hub. Well, eventually, the KC ADC, Kansas Area Development Council, had the opportunity to acquire a failing tech association called Cytax in 2000, at the end of 2011. And Cytax is a hell of an acronym, by the way. It's the Software and Information Technology Association of Kansas. Matt, add that to the acronym mm, list. For okay. the, we did a whole episode about acronyms. Let's defunct now. We're going to do a 2.0 version. I, I, that would be tough. I, I struggle with some acronyms in tech even. And I feel like, you know, as much as we're immersed in it, it gets out of control. Watson has a hard time making it through those episodes and keeping it clean. That's <laughs> true. I believe it. So anyways, Cytax acquired. KCADC wanted to turn it into a marketing initiative to help, at that time, a big project get off the ground, which was Google Fiber. Mm -hmm. So now it's 2012. They hired me in January to come on board and run a a membership organization inside a membership organization, basically. We had about 40 companies that came over from Cytax, and many of them hadn't been communicated with in a long time. So we lost most of them. But I realized that there were a lot of small companies that were funding this advocacy organization. And that's not sustainable. There was no Cerner. There was no Sprint. There's no Garmin. Or so the, you need you need those people to write the big checks to keep the keep the lights on? I mean, they're the biggest employers. Sure. And they weren't supporting the industry. Right. And now they are at significant levels. Yeah. Honestly, they've never been asked. No one had access huh. to go and meet with those companies. And so, you know, my foolish self reached out to anyone I knew that worked at those companies and marketing said- Marketing degree, marketing degree. <laughs> who do I, yeah. yeah. It finally came in handy there. I mean, it's the hustle, right? So yeah. it's like, okay, well, who do I know at Cerner and Sprint and Garmin and DST and Lexmark and on and on and on. And over the course of a couple of years, we started achieving some scale where eventually we not only had their support, but they were sponsoring events. They were putting C-level executives on our board. And they were helping really drive the ship as far as what the vision of the organization would be from that point on. So I've been in this role since January of 2012 and it's changed significantly. Mm-hmm. But the biggest change was in, well, a couple of years ago when we decided to, to pull out of KCADC and do this on our own. And that was in the spring of 2015. What's KCADC? The Area Development Council. Okay. Yeah. They helped to get it off the ground and really without their support, you know, we helped leverage their team of creatives and, and marketing and communications. And it was great. It was a great place to be for a couple of years. But in order for this to be successful, we had to move on. These and are so, all different nonprofits, right? Yeah. These are all civic organizations that are, I mean, KCADC is a multi-million dollar a year revenue organization. Yeah. But they focus on economic development. And so they're in the business of attracting new companies to Kansas City. We were more focused on things like supporting the ones that are here policy work. And so we weren't necessarily aligned on some of that. Does the tech council actively work to recruit businesses to no. come here? No, no. There's other people who do. I mean, again, KCAC has got a couple million dollars a year to focus on that. So, you know, recently there's been a, I don't even remember the names, but I've seen a couple, you know, publications, you know, so, uh, XYZ companies moving here, bringing 150 yeah. jobs. Who, who, who stirs that up? Is it the yeah. company itself or are there people here that are actively like saying, Hey, you have some roots here. Come on back. So let me roll this back a little. We, we help. We provide data to KCADC. We, if there's a company in town and they want to hear from me, I'll, I'll go and present to them about what the tech industry looks like in Kansas City. So we do partner on that, but we do not actively go and, and attract companies to Kansas City. And honestly, that's from the feedback of a lot of our member companies. You know, do you think Cerner really loves it when they hear of a company moving, hiring 100 people? They're not bringing 100 people. They're 
bringing 100 competitive jobs. They're coming because they know they can steal from the larger employers in Kansas City. And they can. And there's a lot of companies that have been successful doing that. So our biggest investors didn't, didn't love us actively recruiting them, just to be honest. And so we listened to them. But when it comes to you know some of these these tech employers that are relocating or adding offices, which I think, by the way, is going to be a flood over the next couple of years. We said that recently. I agree with you. Do you think it's just related on the cost of doing business? No, I think it's the unpredictability of the coasts. Mm-hmm. If I was the CEO of a tech company in San Francisco and it's completely unpredictable, they don't care about money. If they cared about money, they wouldn't be there in the first place. I think they care about not being able to predict how long they can keep their employees. I don't think they they like the un, they don't like the unpredictability of taxes and the, the the longevity of an employee's tenure at the company is unpredictable. We, we hear a lot when yeah. we talk to people about full scale is, uh, you know, they, I mean because it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Yeah, and that's not good for tech because you lose all that domain knowledge. Yeah, I mean, I think Silicon Valley and San Francisco are successful because of the perception that you'll be successful if you're there, and the reality is that some are, but you don't have to be based there. You can have an office in Silicon Silicon Valley, but you can also have a strategic location for other parts of your company. And that's where I think there will always be headquarters in San Francisco. There will be new offices that relocate across the country, but they're going to do so based on the perception of a future workforce. So what I'm hearing from those founders out on the coast are they're looking for Midwestern cities that can put together a case of support that they'll have workers in the future because nobody has enough talented people now nobody not even yeah, I was gonna san francisco say, so here one of the things another thing we run into uh, people talking about a lot is the coast sucking our talent out no it's false like, i can prove so? it i can prove it okay. uh, cbre puts out a report every year called scoring tech talent and they've got a brain drain gain chart shows a you a brain every- drain gain Wait, yeah say that again say it three times Matt. brain drain gain oh, faster dude. brain drain gain i don't i see you messed it up there sorry it's close. Yeah, it really wasn't. But they measure. We we don't <laughs> lose people to the coast. We so if, that's a, that's just a misperception. We gain way more than we lose. Interesting. In fact, last year when we put this out in our, you can go to caseytechspecs.com and look at it. It's our annual report. Uh, you'll see that we gained about thirteen thousand people last year. We didn't lose. We gained thirteen thousand. So. Someone will hear somebody when you say gained, meaning they came from somewhere else yeah. to here or they came out Net. of our education system no. or possibly like people are moving from somewhere else to yeah. KC tech people. Interesting. So the important part about that is you look at the, the cities around us, New York city, just a little bit ahead of us and uh, other big markets. They actually, the market that lost the most people, any guesses, San Francisco, Washington, DC, New York. Boston. I was going to say that next. And you know why? Everyone goes to school there. Yeah. They don't stick around. Yeah. There's not enough jobs. But also costs. It's crazy to think there aren't enough jobs in Boston. I, I They're moving. Yeah. 80,000 people left Boston last year. And there's got to be some other wow. socioeconomic factors that go in there. Like, it's really freaking expensive to live there. Yeah, but there's also, you know, the cost and benefit, right? So... San Francisco gained like a hundred thousand people, right? It's just, they lost a lot, but they gained total gain, hundred thousand people. That's not a lot for a city that size. That's like not big growth. I would think. I, I mean, how three, big is San three times any other tech market? Mm. How big is San Francisco? Oh, it's huge. But no, 10 you're, million people. we're just talking million. about a subset of a subset okay. here. So, I mean, it's huge when you're just talking about tech talent. Right. That's a lot of people. 
So, I mean, that's why the perception is if I go there, I'll have access to talent, access to capital, and possibly be more successful than I would in, say, Kansas City. And unfortunately, we don't have enough proof points to tell them that they're wrong. But what we can do is create the perception that we'll have the future workforce. And that's why we hired lobbyists to change, you know, basically reform computer science education in Missouri, trying to do the same thing in Kansas, where any student in the state of Missouri next fall will actually now be able to take computer science for a credit. In the past, it was just an elective. So when you look at your course catalog and you're deciding what you want to learn and, and which classes you want to take, you got to take math, you got to take science, you got to take other core curriculum, and then you got to choose your electives. So it's the last decision you make in your course catalog. Now it'll be part of your core curriculum where you can count computer science towards a math, science, or practical arts credit. How long do you nice. think it's going to take for that pipeline to like fill and, you yeah. know, really like a, like take effect on em- regions and employers and all that? It's going to take a long time. And, and unfortunately, less than 30% of schools, and granted, there's a lot of schools in Missouri, but less than 30% of them teach computer science at a level that you would be respected of. So it's keyboarding in a lot of places. Luckily, the state of Missouri just passed standards for computer science. So if those school districts want to call it computer science, it has to meet these criteria. Okay, good. So that's a huge step forward. Kansas, even though it's still an elective, Kansas just passed a couple weeks ago their own version of standards so that any school district, I'm not I'm not just talking about rural, like there's school districts here around the KC area that some of those courses aren't going to meet those requirements. And so we're hoping that they don't get dropped, but that they elevate the status of computer science. But but the question was, is do you, th- I mean, to me, I look at that and that's like a decade long solution because you're talking about kids that are in school right now. I mean, like my, my, I have a two year old and a four year old. I mean, at least it's I mean, five years, right? It's like yeah, the I mean, freshman I mean, in high school. You know, like the journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Yeah, no, I get it. I was just the scared. city will still be here. In 10 and years. the reason I ask <laughs> is just because, you know, we have uh, this is a conversation we have a lot, you know, because we're kind of on the other side of the coin here. I mean, yeah. we, we, we work with local companies to help them find tech because they tech talent because they're not finding it here. Yeah, because other countries have excelled at this. Well, and, and that's why, yeah, that's that. why I ask because some of these places, like in the Philippines, you know, like the University of Cebu's mascot's the webmaster. Like, I mean, that's kind of says a little bit about the Mm -hmm. mentality, but you know, it's so many of the, um, you know, one of the high schools there, like they have, uh, you know, they just started like teaching artificial intelligence and machine learning and different stuff like that. Hey, I'm all for it. I just, it's just weird. Like, and you know, like when I was over in Belarus last fall, I was trying to figure out like, why are these people so smart when it comes to engineering? They do two math classes and two science classes. They don't do study hall and choir. We require four credits of math in Missouri to graduate high school. Yeah. But yet math scores in Missouri, I mean, they don't compete with somebody from a lot of other places. Right. Yeah. Well, I think some of that too is back to that socioeconomic thing. Like it, you know, there, you know, here we, America is the land of opportunity and there's a lot of different things that we can do and pursue and stuff like that. And some of these countries they're like, Hey, look, this is what you're going to do. And we're going to start teaching you to do it now. And maybe, I don't know. I think we kind of do that too, though. Yeah, we do some, but it just seems like in smaller doses. But we do it underneath the lens of, this is what I learned and you'll learn it too. Versus like, here's a new way to do it. Let's embrace that. That's not how education in America works. It works. You will learn what I learned and you'll do it in the same way. And we will continue this tradition for the forever and ever and ever. Education is the hottest topic to advocate for because we all have an opinion on it. 
We all had an experience in it, and we've all got an idea of the future of it. And a lot of us have kids that are going through it. I don't think a lot of people appreciate the opportunities they have as the problem. And in other parts of the world, I think maybe they do a better job of taking advantage of them and appreciating them. I mean, yeah, kids are always going to be dumb and do dumb stuff and be responsible. That's part of it. But it seems like around here, my family and things like that, they have all these opportunities and they squander all of them. Nobody puts in the effort. Nobody takes advantage of it. But some of that's probably like psychologically fueled by the feeling of there's another opportunity to jump on board. And I think what you're referring to is like in some of the mentality in other places, like, hey, this is my shot. I better not mess it up. There's so much money that the federal government through the Department of Labor provides for apprenticeships or retraining. And even your companies could have access to hundreds of thousands of dollars to retrain workers or send them on to get their certification. And And that that goes with not only like tech stuff, we're talking like trades. Project management, yeah, yeah. welding, you name it, right? Well, like if you talk to uh, um, Terry Dunn at JE Dunn, like they have the same problem. Their company has the same problem that tech companies have with programmers. Like they don't have welders and like Any skilled profession has, has a huge shortage now. But there's, I mean, millions of dollars out there. And you got to wonder, like, why aren't these people taking advantage of it? Well, it's too good to be true. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a marketing problem. Apprenticeship is not a sexy word in tech, right? And <laughs> we're taking a little selfie. Then not only is apprenticeship not a good word, but like these companies, if you want to participate in these programs, there's a ton of paperwork you got to fill out. You got to have someone from the Department of Labor come and, and look at your office Look behind the scenes, make sure you're doing what you said you're going to do. It's not as simple as leveraging resources to benefit the greater good. There's always you're right. You're 100 percent right. A lot more that. that goes into it. I think there should be even more red tape for going to college. Uh, maybe. Well, dude, two years ago, I had okay. Some a brother of mine, uh, my brother-in-law's, uh, he's a teacher at in Blue Valley, and he's in Caps. And I said, man, you should have an entrepreneurship thing. He goes, all right, cool, write something up. So you're an outline. I was like two days late, so it's like. I sent it to Olathe and some lady grabbed it and she was all, she was all about it. And then and I even went to a meeting. I'm apparently on the advisory board of something for Olathe schools. And then I got to the red tape and I was like, my God, like I'm trying to give back to the community here, people. Like I wanted to do something that literally took, you know, so there they do what they call it. Like the, it's like learning academies. And I want, they, yeah. And they had one, they had some, there's like 10 or 12 of them and they, you know, pathways, there's, there's all sorts of interesting and, verbiage they use. Now. And they get students in there in the last couple of years of high school and they put them in like an ongoing thing. It's like a two year thing. And I wanted the students to yeah. basically build a business that would generate some revenue for the school or the program or whatever. And they're just like the things I had to go through, I just gave up. Let's dissect this for a second. This is fun. I get super passionate about this. I don't have kids, by the way. I just want to throw out. I don't have kids. That doesn't mean I don't care about the future of, of education right. and our workforce. And I say this because people are like, well, if you had kids, you'd think differently about it. Okay, try me on this. When we've got, there are very influential years in everyone's life. And they're pretty much from like sixth grade to your freshman year of high school. When really, all these experiences that you need to have to decide what you want to be when you grow up, should be allotted to you during those transformational years. They're not. They're really not offered to you until the last two years of high school. And this really affects women and minorities. And there's been a a lot of research on this. Stanford had an interesting study that by the age of 13, women are more likely to decide what they don't want to be based Hmm. on social and gender norms. So if boys are flocking to 
STEM fields or robots or computers, they say, I don't want to do that. Not that I'm not interested in that. They say, I don't want to do that. And that is because they haven't had the experience of that yet. And then when the, you know, the boys start going one way, girls start going another way, they feel like that's something they shouldn't do or can't do. And yet we don't teach computer science until at least your junior or senior year. And that's a huge problem. So the first step of, a, of the journey of a thousand miles was to pass so that credit, the, this computer science opportunity can be a credit. The next thing is we got to look at how far down the road can we offer something like that so more people will see that technology is built to create or to, to solve problems. And if you're interested in building or changing the world, technology can be a tool to do that. And I think that's going to attract a broader, more diverse group of people to pursue computer science beyond well, high school. I, I think they're starting to do more of it even earlier though, right? I have a third grader. And even I think in first grade, they were starting to do different types of apps and games like iPad apps and stuff that were a light form of like logic and programming and stuff. And I think they're trying to do it. It's not full on computer science at that level, right? But it's getting them interested, yeah. getting them thinking that way. There are good. I appreciate you mentioning this because there are bright lights <laughs> in the dim world there, right? Yeah. Where there has been a grant been given to a school or a district to pursue some of these things. And every time we see that bright light, I also see this oncoming <laughs> onslaught of parents who think screen time is bad. Yeah, sure. Yep. I'm yeah, over that. I don't buy into that at all. Well, hey, there is a huge momentum growing behind no screen time in school. Yeah. And I'm it's going to happen. It's going to happen in a school district in Kansas City at some point in the next couple of years. They're going to say, we made a mistake by putting these devices in front of these kids and we're going to no longer offer that. And they're going to do it not because it's what's best for the kids. It's because they're running out of money. And sounds funding about a, sounds about is as smart as taking problem. evolution out of textbooks or something. Okay, okay. I mean, watch the news. I mean, screen time is something that advocacy groups are looking at as, as a way to, and by the way, education is a huge business in America. So there's a lot of these groups out there that make a ton of money providing textbooks and curriculum to your kids. Do you think the textbooks company loves the iPads are no. now in the classroom? Right. Those are huge business industries. And there's a long history of this in the world. Wherever change comes, there's immediate resistance followed by some adoption to complete support. And we've seen this throughout the entire uh, entirety of the modern world. And we're seeing this education now where these devices got into the classroom and there's been pushback. There's going to be elimination of that at some point, And then we'll finally adopt devices in schools. <laughs> it's what's going on. And not what every school is one-to-one, -one, by the way. Well, I, I think I noticed with my kids, my kids are nine, four, and two, all boys. And a lot of screen time is bad for them. Um, what are they watching? I mean, they can sit and watch random crap on YouTube, Ryan's toy review or whatever. Ryan, it's your fault. Um, yeah. for hours. Dude, Ryan and, makes, Ryan's toy. That kid makes more money. Yeah. Than they do. And they, no it affects their behavior, their attitude, everything. But to me, that's totally different than when they go to school and they're using it for educational purposes. To me, yeah. that's different. My kids seem to be learning stuff that I, I mean, we, I, we try to, Jill and I try to keep it like, it's hard to like, keep it totally topical, but you know, my kids were rocking quite a bit of screen time yesterday, but they watched about 15 episodes of Sesame street. Like what's the letter of the day, bro. Cause they know. And, <laughs> and, and now in that regard, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. That's definitely better than them watching people play video things. games all yeah, day or something or Ryan's toy. Reviews. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you don't, nobody wants their kids on YouTube all day. Right. right? 
Well, YouTube does. But how important would it be to teach these lessons and healthy habits as early as possible and allow the schools to be part of that accountability as far as how we're going to use these devices responsibly? And I think the first step for all of them was restricted. Block or eliminate all these apps. You know what? Everyone finds a way around that stuff. There's one school that I'm aware of, and there may be more. So if people listen, it's like, hey, you're off. Okay. There's there's 110 schools in Kansas City or more um, districts, 110 districts, something like that. In Liberty, there's an elementary school called Epic Elementary, and it's a national model for the future of education. Maybe even there's some debate around this. It's actually controversial. Everything is taught through the device from kindergarten to second grade, everything. And it's interesting because you go into one of these classrooms, it's just basically an open room. There's a projector and a smart TV and the teacher has got an iPad as well. And so they're doing math. And what you'll notice is she'll give a math problem and it's sent to all their devices and she can log in and look and how, see how they're solving the problem. And she can see when they get stuck. So she can, she can say like little, you know, child, would you, uh, we see you're stuck. Would you airplay your solution to the problem in class? Can you help them? And they will. So they get up and they public speak in front of this kindergartners. Okay. So they're learning basic math and then they all have their own websites. So computer lab to them is actually sitting down in front of a Mac and building a website. And we're talking, these are six and seven year old kids. This is in Liberty, Liberty, Epic elementary. And not only that, but Liberty, bro. they're using um, algorithms to solve problems. And they don't know. These kids honestly don't know what they're doing. And I'm looking at them and it is freaking adorable when you see a seven-year-old talking about their algorithm that they built. And it's like the cutest thing ever because they found a problem in the world and the teacher encouraged them to use technology to solve it. And I just feel for them because after that elementary school experience is over, so is that kind of education. There is no continuance. We've, so, so do you believe that the, what they're doing there is the right thing to do? Because I think it's amazing. You can go and see it with your own eyes. Yeah. I mean, those kids have created foundational skills. They'll be just fine in this world. But to you got to think about what where the world's heading and like what what's going to happen regardless of whether we want it to or not. And I don't want my kid to be sitting on the front porch when an, the Amazon drone drops something off and then the self-driving car comes picks and picks me and my wife up for our date where we're going to watch the hologram performance. You don't want to live in that world? No, I, I don't want to live in the one where, and then my kid's sitting there with a chalkboard and a piece of chalk doing yeah. reading, writing, and <laughs> arithmetic. Like, I mean, you get what you, well, you got to expose them to what you all right. The people that are best at things in the world often learned at that age. Like you talk tinkerers, to, like people that were like the, the carpenters or craftsmen or musicians or stuff like that. So I worked in the music industry for a while and there's a ton of data there that says you got to expose people to that. Like kids that do music lessons uh, typically later have higher math scores. They're better at spatial reasoning and stuff like that. It's pattern recognition. That's all music is. And like, and you know, different stuff like that. And if that's what keeps them engaged. So I worked for a company that made digital everything and we did digital pianos and we couldn't get kids to play regular pianos, but they did love the digital pianos because they had games on them and they barked like dogs mm-hmm. and they had clapping hands and Stuff like that. I mean, well, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Epic has been very controversial. It's a lottery system to get in. And as a parent, you have to volunteer a certain number of hours to have your kid actively enrolled in school. And the reason why they do that, they knew there would be pushback. If your six-year-old is coming home with an iPad talking about an algorithm and you don't know how to help them with their homework, 
there's just going to be people that rebel against that kind of education. I might actually figure out algorithms. You may learn. Days, so yeah. the parents have to go and they learn alongside yeah. the kids so they can help them with that homework. But it's all done through the iPad. There is no paper or pens in the entire place. It's cool. I mean, that's the, that's the future. That's the way it's going to be. Man. I mean, like even the idea that like you talk about textbooks and publishing, like how are, yeah. how are newspapers and publishing companies doing these days? Cause we did an episode about dying industries and they were both on there. Well, I'm just saying the, it's always darkest before done. <laughs> Maybe. And you're seeing that with these companies that are, are we just getting back to the game, to... game of Thrones references here. Cause <laughs> I feel like some of the, the school systems seem to be in that era. Okay. Here's the other thing that let me give, let's let, let's have a call to action here because we can talk about how education would be or could be forever. You need to look at who are the people making these decisions. And I'm not saying they're all bad because there's some really good people that serve on school boards. There's also most of these folks that run unopposed. Nobody from the tech industry is on those boards. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Probably maybe one or you know, two. Like they're running for school district, whatever, and they're just unopposed? Well, in both Kansas and Missouri, yeah. So they're unopposed. Interesting. They're, these are two states that are heavily controlled at the local level. So even though the State Board of Education says you will teach this, they're like, ah, next year. They decide what kids in their neighborhoods and school districts are going to learn. They also decide who the superintendent's going to be and if they're going to keep that person, pay that person. So basically deciding who the CEO of the company is going to be. And then that person is also in charge with delivering on some of those promises the school board makes. But the school board has all the control and very few people know who serves on those school boards. Hmm. But if you look at the elections, and there was one here recently in KCMO, like some of those positions ran unopposed. And that's pretty sad. There's just not even interest in people to serve in that much of a powerful position. And I think for those of us in the tech industry, especially if anyone's passionate about education or the use of technology in, in advancing education, got to put some people on the school boards. And that's something I want to I bring more light to. That's the only way we're going to create systemic change is putting people who understand the value of technology in those leadership roles. I, I running unopposed is the kind of election I'd be into running in. <laughs> Roll up the sleeves, man. I mean, Go for it. I mean, some of that though is like, no, you want to act like you earned it. You don't want to run unopposed. Well, no, I want the easiest. I want the path of least resistance. <laughs> I'm voting against you. Then. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's fine. No, I mean, I'm willing to roll up my sleeves if there's an opponent, but why fight a fight if you don't have to? Gotta I take, mean, gotta there's these. probably like 25 different Sun Tzu things that are like, if you avoid the fight, you you know, something. I don't know. Well, wouldn't you want to run against somebody who's 80 and hasn't been opposed in 30 years on this? I'm not, I'm not over-exaggerating necessarily. Maybe. I don't you think, may you know, but here's the thing, I don't, folks out. I don't think I'd want to do it at all though. Cause I don't like the way that the scrutiny that these people get put under for no reason. I personally, I'm not a big fan of politics at all. Yeah. Cause I just find it tiresome. I'm like, God, you're <laughs> never going to agree. We even talked about that yesterday. Some different ways to potentially ruin your, your company's brand and by like getting involved in politics, being supercharged with your comments about religion, politics, yeah. race, sex, like things that, you know, I mean, so again, like we do not endorse candidates. We do not, we, I'm not a politician. I'm not a lobbyist, but policy. Don't, don't call Ryan a lobbyist. No, I'm not. I made that. I, I, I didn't call you a lobbyist, but I asked him, I was like, and he was like, no, 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 no. No, the L word is a very strong word, but the reason why there's a clear difference between what we do and what a lobbyist does. And so I don't spend no, more than a certain percentage of my time on policy work, but 
it is extremely important. If we want to create a perception that Kansas City is a place for future tech companies and current companies to flourish, we need to guarantee that every kid in this that's going to school in this region is going to have a computer science experience that's going to make them valuable as soon as they graduate. I'd get behind that. And I'm not saying they got to go to college, but if they do go to college, then those universities need to be prepared to count computer science at, towards an admission requirement, which it doesn't right now. We also need to make sure that there's adequate learnings for them to get skills while they're there. Not necessarily a degree in computer science, but but certainly coding languages and certifications that schools should be providing while you're there. So if I would have graduated with a marketing degree and maybe a minor or some sort of certificate in data science or analytics, I would have been extremely employable back then. But just that marketing degree, I wasn't. Maybe my GPA didn't, didn't help me either, but... <laughs> But still, I feel like GPA should be like golf. The lower the score, the better. <laughs> so, Ryan, because we've been talking for a while, and I know you don't want to get out of here without talking about Hyperloop, let's. Uh, what do you want to know? Let's I'll tell you everything. Well, um, I, I know you will. And that's why I wanted to give you time. So, like, all right, what's the reality that something like Hyperloop is going to happen here? Very likely. Okay, why? We are so well positioned to be the first place for this technology. And I don't think enough Kansas Cityans realize that. It is tech that plays to the strengths of Kansas City. We have always been a transportation logistics hub ever since covered wagons stopped here and resupplied and railroads shortly thereafter came through. The interstate system started here. Uh, transportation logistics, we are the second largest rail hub in America. We've got huge intermodal facilities at Richard, the old Richard Gabbard Airport. And also in Gardner Edgerton, we are we are it. I mean, we're the. Let's back up just a second too. Our greatest strength is that we are one of the most largest geographically central cities in America. So, if this is the future of transportation logistics, it should absolutely happen in the place with the strongest emphasis on that industry. And we've also got a pretty unique asset in the fact that we've got two major metro areas in one state that also are connected by the same interstate system that would have potentially the right-of-way opportunity to build new infrastructure like this. So you wouldn't have to acquire a significant amount of land. Now, there was a story recently in the Star, a feasibility study, which did not focus on eminent domain or land acquisition, mentioned you know, we could, could need up to 30%, which is a significantly low number with a project of this size. So sidebar. But this could really propel and change the perception of our state and our region because technology is finding its way in every industry. It's only a matter of time before infrastructure like this is built in America. So why can't it be built here first is really a question I would ask. It's amazing to think eventually you could go from like Denver to St. Louis in like an hour, or hour and a half or Less. whatever it would be. That's insane. It's a, once you get up to speed, you're That's cruising. Crazy. The longest, What takes long is getting up to... 800 miles an hour. Well, you're at 800 miles an hour. You're flying. Yeah. You're going so, way faster than a jet. So who, who pays for that? Who's like, mean? I mean, where's the funding, like the proposed funding for the Hyperloop? I mean, is that private? Is that public? P3. So public private partnership is the most likely scenario. And from a private standpoint, I can tell you, I've, I've talked to a number of large global investors who are very interested in this. There is no other technological advancement that would have this much of a disruption on moving people and products across a large amount of land. Do you think it'll be used to move a lot of cargo? Absolutely. Think about a, a system that's predictable, autonomous, 
electric and not impacted by pilot shortages, fuel prices, weather. I mean, it is a very predictable system. And And you you also look at things too. Like I think people grossly underestimate just how much like just gen, like you've got these trucks driving everywhere with everything you buy all the time. And, and they'll they be get autonomous. Like two, they may be two miles per the gallon. And just yeah. like, it's just, it's, but it's, they're going to be autonomous. They're going to be electric at some point soon. But in the meantime, so how long would it take for to get from Kansas city to St. Louis? It's about a three and a half hour drive. Man, I just did that drive on Sunday. It's terrible. It's horrible. I know. It took almost five hours. I wish they'd build it somewhere else than to St. Louis, like well, Denver, somewhere cool. Who's to say we're not. Yeah. I like that. It's if, like a 30 minute ride. I think right. Hyperloop to St. Louis. It'd be under 30. Yeah. 30 just minutes. under 30. I thought you said it got but it to also, 800 miles an hour. But well, just it's a matter of so it distance. really doesn't even get it. Get okay. So like so, if it went to Denver, it might take 30 minutes to get to Denver too. Exactly. Okay, I'd, I'd be like, hey, man, I'm gonna, it's not going to stop anywhere I'm, in Kansas I'm along gonna, the way. <laughs> that's not true. Well, by the way, you talk about you talk about problems worth solving. The drive across Kansas is definitely worth. Solving. I would rather do that drive than ever take the I-70 route to St. Louis. I, I literally went to a wedding in St. Louis for the weekend, so it took me five hours on Friday and almost five hours on Sunday to get back because. Traffic the whole way was just congested. I never got to the speed limit. It was just going, it was always that crowded. Wow. Because a truck, a truck would get over trying to pass in their truck, couldn't. So we'd all be stuck behind them for miles. And there was a construction mark along the way that slowed everybody down. It just took forever. It's not a three hour drive, it's way longer than that. Matt, I'm going to Denver for lunch. I'll be back in an hour and a half. Yeah, you can. We can go ski. I'm going to Denver to get some weed. I'll be back in an hour and a half. We could go ski. We go take a couple turns and come back, sleep in our bed. And that, you know, that's another thing too that would be. I mean, just I, I hear. You. I think it's cool. Um, so, when but, do we think this is going to happen? Okay, so from the day we break ground and say we've done the research, we've with R and D phase is over, we're going to build this now. It will take roughly five years from that point when it's we not break that ground. Long. Well, a couple of years to build it, it's probably a year bad. to test it, and yeah. then you're riding on it. That's not that bad. But when do you think they'll get started? Any idea? Yeah, so there's a couple next steps. So the CEO of Hyperloop One was just in town a couple weeks ago. We hosted a little community event for him. And uh, people ask these questions all the time because, I mean, honestly, I wish the answer was yesterday. We could do this and we could get going. Can we talk about what makes the Hyperloop the Hyperloop as well? Like, oh, yeah. What, like, how does it work? Because <laughs> I just think about that tube at the bank that sends yeah, your money back tubes. to the teller. Is yeah. that how no. it works? No. That everyone thinks that. So it's not a pneumatic tube. So it's not like a suction device. So what a Hyperloop is, is a tube where the air has been removed to basically mimic the atmosphere at about 110,000 feet. And the reason why airplanes travel 30 no some odd thousand is there's, yeah, there's less friction. It's more efficient. Okay. You can travel faster. But at 100,000, you travel even more quickly. So after the air has been removed, there is an electric motor that goes down the middle of the track. And there's a pod or a vehicle that up to probably 20 people could be in. And they're on demand. So it's not like you're going to take the 10 o'clock hyperloop to st louis you just arrive at the station and you go and you could order it via device whatever we're using at that point in time like a series of cars you almost ride in your own vehicle it is constantly going you could get your private private Hmm. vehicle maybe that could be a good entrepreneurial opportunity for somebody so so basically what it is is, will get his own (laughs) his old one yeah i can see the wheels turning into that private jets are gonna be a thing of the past (laughs) yeah absolutely but basically the pod um it's called maglev, magnetic levitation. When you reach a certain speed, the pod levitates, there's no friction. And that's why it can travel Ooh. fast and efficient. And this technology exists in the world already. It's in Germany. It's in Japan with these trains that are maglev yeah, trains. trains yeah. yeah, but 
they can't reach those speeds unless they're in rural areas and they can't do the maglev unless they're in a very rural area because it's super loud. Hmm. It's not inside of a tube, especially not of a vacuum tube. Oh, so tube. the tube keeps it quiet. Yeah, there's also not a sonic boom in the tube. Oh, wow. It's very light. There's one, but it's very, very What's quiet. The, what, what, what is that, Mach 3 or something like Mach that? One, Mach, Mach 1. Mach 1. And how fast is that? Well, 580 or something. What is it? It's more like seven or 800. Yeah. But so this literally breaks the speed of sound? Oh, and go way faster than that. That's Hypothetically. Cool. Hasn't been proven yet, but it will be soon. So, so you had the folks in from Hyperloop, and what did they have to say? Yeah, so Virgin Hyperloop One is the company we're working with on this because they've actually got a full-scale model outside of Vegas. And I've been there. I've seen it. All the parts and pieces of that model exist in the real world and the supply chain. It's just put together in a unique way. There's not a lot of proprietary information and technology in this, just the way it's all put together. So that company is now looking for you know the first North American track. This will likely launch first in India to connect Pune and Mumbai. And then also in Spain, there's another project that's as far along as we are. But we would likely, at this point, if we keep the momentum going, we'll be the first in North America to, to build this. And the advantages to that are really endless. When you're first, you're kind of setting the rules of the game. And then we could basically connect the entire country from the middle versus like the railroads that traveled from one side of the country to the other and went bankrupt doing it. This would travel from the middle to those coasts. Honestly, I don't know if the coasts are ever going to get it. Those are very difficult places to build infrastructure. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I think. Like if you're in, it'd be awesome to go from like Boston to New York to Washington, D.C., but there's no place to build it. No, you have to go underground. That's why Elon Musk is focused on tunnels and not Hyperloop. Yeah. We should probably all go out to Vegas and check out this prototype. We're going to do a trip around. next month. And there we go. I will keep you posted because I want everyone to see it. Because when you see it, you're like. I wasn't serious, but now I am. I'm serious. We're going to take yeah. Matt's plane. Let's go. <laughs> Here we go tomorrow. <laughs> Um, when you see it though, you, you change your mind. You're like, Oh man, this, this really could, this is happening. This is real. People do this. This is, this exists. And, uh, I want to be first. So how much will that tr- proposed trip cost? Like, uh, I mean, like theoretically the feasibility study that black and beach conducted. Bucks, five bucks. Well, I think it's going to be a subscription. Like you just subscribe. Uh, there, the cost would be There's less no than way I'd subscribe of- to a trip to St. Louis though. We'll see. Maybe. You can commute to work that way. You say that now. Commute to work in St. Louis? Yeah. When did I have to move to St. Louis for work? (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I'm just, I'm still grumpy about like all the success the Cardinals have had compared to the Royals. That stadium is cool. I know. The rest of the town is. Think about jumping over there to watch a game though. It'd be cool. Yeah, probably. I've I've enjoyed working with our, our peers over in St. Louis in this project, but they've got some serious issues they're working through as far as how they've structured politically that whole area major wealth gap in st louis i'm not saying we're innocent of that here but they've got some serious issues over there what do you think it'll cost to build that track from here to there is that seven to ten billion oh my god is that a lot that's a lot says who i mean not the government (laughs) they just make up however much money we need so let's have them pay for it it's not but this was funded by triple p be it be a public private yeah that's a lot of money say that three times really fast (laughs) (laughs) it's a lot of money Triple P, triple P, triple P. So, Ryan, where, is a lot of money. where can we get more information about the Tech Council? KCTechCouncil.com. That was easy. Can we find more information about you somewhere? 
Uh, <laughs> and just like, is there what like, you want to know? I don't know. You my you, super boring so-called life. I um, maybe actually, Ryan, you're, you're, you're very sophisticated in the information and the things that you're into. So I don't know oh, if you have other well, platforms thanks. that you speak out or if they're, yeah, I'm on all of them. Twitter, Facebook, okay. Instagram, see I'm, me there. Well, I mean, I saw you on C-SPAN. Like for real. You and like, my mom both. Yeah. Yeah, I know. We were the only two watching, but we were so proud of that you. That was awkward. Kind of like Facebook Live. You can see how many people are watching. You're like, that's not that many. <laughs> <laughs> Did, could you really? Oh, I was going to say, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Like, well, there's I like, thought it was interesting. There's like an but... icon with like nine yeah. on C SPAN. It's pretty humbling. Yeah. But no, I mean, that was, uh, I thought that was cool just to see people from Kansas City representing KC. I mean, that's so much of what this podcast is about. You know, yeah, we, we like to feel like we shine a spotlight on our, uh, our on our on our mega media market here. You know, I think we we're hoping to crack I, the I top think, thirty. I think we outkick our coverage a little bit. I mean, I think we're, mm-hmm. we're often portrayed as a much bigger, more sophisticated place than maybe we are. I appreciate I think, that. I think the opposite on some days. Like it kills me. Like when I go places, they're like, you, "You're from Kansas City? Are there cows?" I'm like, "Yeah, dude, I live in the fucking middle of a cow field." <laughs> Live in the middle of a cow pasture that's run by blockchain, artificial <laughs> intelligence, dairy farmers. Did you think the dairy farmers were going to be so high tech? No. Are there any stonemasons that are members of the tech council? Uh, well, you know, it's a secret society, so I don't know. I don't that's know how I would know. So, you know what isn't a secret society is the KC Tech Council. Uh, we joined. Stackify's member. Yeah. Um, what, uh, so you can go to the website. It's easy to sign up. Uh, they have a lot of events. So I've gone to a couple. We had the no coast awards, which uh, you yeah. guys, you guys have put on top notch stuff. Thank you. And that's cool. Cause like the last thing the world needs is another shitty event, man. I'll tell you what we thank you because I'm being serious, man. Like we go to some stuff and it's like, dude, what is this? So like in Kansas city, we are not that big of a market, but yet, I mean, it's amazing how some of these things continue. And it honestly hurts us because there's not corporations are not funding events anymore. And honestly, we can't put them on without sponsors. Well, you're getting them because you guys did well. The no coast so was cool. The, C- the CEO retreat was cool. You know, the folks over at Startland have they've done well with they're doing great with some of the events they've put on, like the you know, the, their startups to watch so that that was done well, their monthly innovation exchange, uh, which we did a live podcast at. We get to host another one of those. So um so anyway, organizations like the KC Tech Council count on people like you. Um, if you are listening to this podcast and you're a startup founder, an entrepreneur, you think you want to do something, look, join their organization. You might look at it first and go, man, I don't have the money for that. I don't want it. You don't have the money to not do it. Like I'm being, <laughs> for that. well, I'm being serious though. Cause well, that's like, the way we feel about it, but yeah. come to these events, you know, like the tech counts are these different things and talk to people that have done it, that want to do it. And they will give you you know what? I one thing I do love about Kansas City is people are very open here. Yeah, and they're not like you. Like we don't have some crazy guarded secret. They're like, oh my god, I don't. Want, you know, and they will tell you about stuff. And Watson will tell you how bad your idea is or how good your idea is. <laughs> and you know, and and I will too. And I'm sure Ryan will as well. But anyway, because um, we are running out of time. Okay. Uh, if you know, do, we should put a hyperloop on the podcast and we can get it done and like. Four minutes. Let's do it. You, you know would what? love that. Let's By the time it. we you started this, that. we could have been in St. Louis and yeah. watching the Royals beat the Cardinals. 
Oh, could have done been, it for that. We could. Yeah. Have, I'm looking forward to recording the first podcast ever on the Hyperloop. There we go. And you're going to make that happen. Yes, because you're part of our startup hustle family now. So anyway, Ryan, thanks again. KCTechCouncil.com. Sign up. Check out the events. What's the next event? You got Tech Day at the K, July Ooh. 18. We're doing Skip Day at the K. I think I'll be there. I, I, I didn't want to call you out no, on that. I'm totally, you will be working hard. Totally going to that. Yeah, I'm not even ashamed of it. But then we got Camp Cyber in the fall for all the cybersecurity people out there. I like it. Going back to beautiful Maple Ranch. And uh, that'll be September 12 and 13 for the cybersecurity world. Very different than the CEO retreat. I leave there usually freaked out by what I've learned from those who deal with these issues every day. I came there really freaked out about how I need an awesome ranch. Yeah. Anyway, guys, thanks again, Ryan. We will catch up with you soon. I want to have you back because there's many things that we clearly need to update here. Love to. Thank you, guys. Thank you. See ya. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.